0: If you could open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3, we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 6 through 19. Now, as you turn there, let me ask you a question. If somebody were to ask you, what is your favorite psalm? What would it be? What would you say? Psalm 1? Pretty good. It's a good way to start the Psalter. Psalm 2, we all know that. What about Psalm 20? I love Psalm 19 Psalm 51 my wife probably has a much bigger list than this Psalm 119, that's it those are my favorite psalms, that's all I got but in that list there is Psalm 19 does anybody like Psalm 19? am I the only one? does that psalm ring a bell to you the heavens declare the glory of God the sky above proclaims his handiwork day to day, pours out speech night to night brings knowledge familiar, right? It should be. It's a beautiful psalm. It's one of the best psalms, at least I think so. C.S. Lewis said it was one of the best pieces of literature ever written. And in that psalm, it's divided in two parts. It first talks about natural revelation, and in the second part, it talks about special revelation. And when he talks about natural revelation and how nature proclaims God's glory, he specifically looks at the sun and is utterly amazed by it. And recently, I was on the Mark train as I was driving into work and it was kind of dark and then it started lighting up and I had that same kind of moment the the psalmist had and I was amazed that there was this giant light in the sky when there was previously darkness that was illuminating everything. This giant light bulb showing up in the sky that made the darkness disappear. I just ask you to stop and look at that sun and be quite amazed. And one of the interesting things about the sun is it it doesn't just perform this function of a giant light bulb, but it also is a giant heat source, right? Everyone knows when you're burning in the sun, sweating and looking for the shade to get away from its heat. And what's interesting about the sun is its heat has different effects on different objects. This should be no surprise to any of you. In fact, there's an entire Proverbs about this, and I'll give you one. It's interesting that the sun has the ability to melt the wax, and the candy bar for that matter, and the ice cream cone, and you. It melts certain things. But the sun also, which is probably less familiar because it does this to less objects, but it also has the ability to harden. Proverbial statement that it can harden the clay. Now I personally am not a clayman or whatever you say working with clay, but I'm told that if you have pottery and you put it out there and it starts off soft and then it becomes hard. So the same sun, here's the point, the same sun that can melt the wax with the candy bar can also harden the clay. Now here's my question for you. That sun, I'm gonna say, represents God. And the heat represents his influence. And so which one are you? Right now, just take an inventory of yourself. Are you the wax that as you are encountering the living God in day-to-day activity in the last six months, in the last week, two weeks, whatever, are you being melted? Are you being changed for the better? Or are you more like the clay? We're all being exposed to that sun, but are you rather becoming harder? Rather, are you less tender? Rather, if you take inventory of yourself, are you saying, I'm growing in godliness, or I used to be more serious about my faith. I used to share the gospel. I used to love singing his songs. I want you to think about that. Are you the wax, or are you the clay? And if you are the clay, and certainly there's somebody in this room that's the clay, ought you be concerned? And... What should you be concerned about? So I want you to think about that. We're going to jump to our passage and see if the Word of God has something to say to you. Go to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 6 through 19. I'll read the entire passage. But Christ, as a son over his own house, in whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who having heard rebelled, Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that would not enter his rest? But to those who did not obey, so we see they could not enter because of unbelief. So in verse 6, the author gives us a promise and a warning. The warning is that if we do not endure to the end, we are not God's house. It's pretty clear. If you do not endure to the end, then you currently are not God's house. Now, what does it mean to be God's house? Now, sometimes we hear that expression, the house of the Lord. This is the house of the Lord. And generally, when we hear that expression. We're talking about the church. This is the house of God. It's this place, the special meeting place, the assembly, the sometimes the body of believers, however you want to think about it. It's the collective people of God that are the house of God. But not only is the church, corporately on Sunday and all the time, every other day of the week, the house of God. That's 100% true. But it's also true that you individually are the house of God. First Corinthians 3.16 says, do you not know that you are Are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 8, it's kind of startling, but here's what it says in Hebrews 8, verse 9. But you are not of the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit, he is not his. So not only are we collectively the people of God, but if you individually do not have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, you're not his. On the flip side, if you do have the spirit of God dwelling in you, you are his. And the whole dichotomy there in Hebrew, in Romans chapter 8 is the flesh waging against the spirit. And by the spirit we put to the the death the deeds of the flesh. But if you don't have the spirit, of course you cannot do that. So all the people of God have the spirit of God. And the spirit of God is what comes in and takes that dead soul at that dead soul that's only worthy of fellowship with demons, and it replaces it with a new man, a new spirit, that now can have communion, have intercourse, have relations with the Holy Spirit. You take that dead person, that wicked old Adam, kills him, replaces him with a new man that can now have that interpersonal relationship with God. And thus, what we see in our text here in verse Six is that a litmus test or a multiple litmus test, but this one specifically mentions one litmus litmus test. Namely, how do you know if you have been truly born again? How do you know if the Holy Spirit truly dwells within you? Well, one, there's multiple, but one, the one specifically mentioned in verse six is whether or not you endure to the end. If you endure to the end, then the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, why is that? Because Philippians 1, 6 says that he who begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Notice the if. He, if he begun a good work in you, then he will complete it. God is not going to complete a work that he has not begun. So, if we have had the beginning work of regeneration and indwelling of the Spirit on our heart, he will ensure that we one day be glorified. So we can see why a litmus test for whether or not we are truly the house of God, whether we truly have the Spirit, is whether we endure to the end. Because if he has begun that work, he will bring it to an end. So that's the promise. The warning, of course, is that if we fall away, if we do not continue to abide in Christ, if we merely speak of salvation as a past reality, but not a present reality, if we simply say, I was saved when I was five, when I prayed a prayer, or when I walked down the aisle, or when I was a member of a good, healthy, reformed church, it doesn't matter. If you simply look to the past for your assurance of salvation, but have no current relationship with God, then you are simply mistaken. You are simply not going to be saved in the end. That's the warning. You are not God's house if you do not endure. And so, if one day you stand before those pearly gates and you meet God, you meet the angels, however you want to look at it, and you go up to those gates and have no faith, you're not getting in. You see that? You can come up with all kinds of theological discussions and nuance. You're not getting in if you stand before God and you're not clothed in his righteousness and you are not a believer. Martin Luther once famously, when he would doubt his salvation and have worries and things of that nature, he would often comfort himself by saying, I am baptized, I am baptized. And there was some, there was some meaningfulness of that, that he could look at the promises of God and he could see, he was infant baptized, so not, not as much as him, I'm just gonna make him a Baptist. He could see that he went and talked to the elders and gave a testimony and stood before the congregation and shared his baptism and they Accepted him, there's reason to find assurance in the fact that you have been baptized. It's meaningful, it's a real sign of a reality. But baptism is a past event. What you really need to look at is whether you currently have faith. Why do I say that? Well, consider Matthew 7. You know that list. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, and then he gives a long list of people who've done a bunch of wonderful things. They do mighty works, they prophesy his name, they do a whole bunch of great stuff. Well, we can, of course, assume if they've done all these amazing deeds that they've done the least of these, namely, they have been baptized. And yet at the end of that passage, Jesus tells them, depart from me, you work of iniquity, for I have never known you. So simply thinking about baptism, simply thinking about your work, simply thinking about a past reality is insufficient. Rather, we must look to our current faith and our current resting in Christ. Jesus said this very explicitly. In John chapter 15, verse seven, Jesus says, then Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You see that if statement? If you abide in the word of God, then you are truly a disciple, meaning you must abide, you must remain. Matthew twenty four thirteen says, but he who endures to the end shall be saved, not he who begins to go on pilgrimage. Jesus makes this very, very clear. I'm not gonna read all the passages, but if you go to Revelation chapter three, Jesus actually speaks to the church. It's really amazing. Jesus speaks to the churches specifically and gives them evaluation. And he says something over and over. He warns them and he constantly says to them, but he who overcomes, I will grant him to have white garments. But he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar. But he who overcomes, I will never blot out his name from the book of life. But he who overcomes, do you see that you must overcome you must do it as i was thinking about this necessity to continue my mind went back to the wonderful book pilgrim's progress and you remember when pilgrim goes out on pilgrimage and he leaves that city of destruction and two people come and chase him down does anybody remember that you guys know pilgrim's progress You remember the two people chasing him down? you got to know this. Even if you didn't read the whole book, you got to at least read the first chapter, right? Come on. Before the language are too archaic or whatever, you at least had that part, right? And two people chase him down. We have obstinate and we have pliable. And pliable follows him for a little while. And here's what Pilgrim describes what happens to pliable after. He tells him all these wonderful things about the heavenly kingdom. And he gets all excited. And then he falls into... The, the slough of despond. And this is the scene found in Pilgrim's Progress. It says, After Pliable fell in, he began to be offended and angrily said to his fellow, Is this the happiness that you told me of all the while? If we such ill speed at our first setting out, what may we expect on the way and our journey's end? And if I get out of here with my life, you shall possess this brave country alone. So he's saying, is this, is this the good stuff you promised me? I mean, we just started the pilgrimage and I run into the slough of the spawn. This can't be good. If this is how it begins, where does it end? If I get out of here, I'm gone. And that's exactly what happens, that Pliable is able to wiggle himself out of the slough of Despond and he runs away. He leaves. Well, is Pliable a Christian figure? Is Pliable a saved person? No, he's not. Pliable is the picture of the apostate. Pliable is the picture of one who began pilgrimage but ultimately does not end up where he is meant to go. Now for you big fans of Pilgrim's Progress, you may know this, but some of you may not. Interesting enough, Pliable shows up again in Pilgrim's Progress. He shows up in the very beginning, and he shows up in scene number 5, and they actually have a discussion about Pliable. Faithful comes out of the city of destruction and Christian's having a conversation with him. And this is what Christian and Faithful discuss about Pliable. Christian says, Did you hear no talk of your neighbor pliable? Faithful responds, He had, since his going back, been greatly in derision, and that among all sorts of people, some do mock and despise him, and will scarce any set him to work. He is now seven times worse than he had ever gone out of the city. And they go on to talk about him. And the point is, is that even John Bunyan, who people said that when you cut him, he bled Bible When he was describing pliable in his book, he was not describing him as a Christian person. This is an apostate. This is a person who ultimately goes into the city of destruction. And again, I'm not quoting Pilgrim's Progress as an authoritative source, but I'm trying to get you to see from a book that hopefully you know and enjoy that this idea of being a pliable type of person who begins pilgrimage but does not end it is not the way to succeed and not the way to enter into the celestial city. And even the world understands this. There's a famous tale, a moral story, about the rabbit and the turtle. You know that story where you have the rabbit and the turtle, and they decide to have a wager about who can run the race. And the rabbit harasses the turtle and makes fun of him and eventually even goes to sleep on him, telling him how he could destroy him and all sorts of things, only to wake up in his horror and find that the turtle had beat him in the race. And that moral of that story is the same reality. It's not he who begun the race. It's not he who starts out well, but he who finishes that will ultimately end the race. And so here we have in our Bible a warning for us that we need to endure, that we need to continue on and continue to run through this journey of life. We need these warnings. These scriptural warnings are for our good. We do no good by ignoring them, by disregarding them or explaining them away. The Bible is very clear. We have these warnings and therefore are good. In Psalm 1911, it says, by your word, your servant is warned and keeping them, there is great reward. So we don't need to explain away the warnings of the Bible, but we need to embrace them and accept them. And so as we are going on this journey, we should consider our path and ask ourselves where we headed Are we headed ultimately to eternal bliss, or are we ultimately headed to the dark night of the soul? We need to, therefore, take heed lest we think we stand and lest we fall. So the question is, how do we take heed? If we see that there is a necessity to endure, we don't want to be pliable, we want to continue on running this race to the celestial city, how do we take heed lest we fall? How do we listen to these warnings of the scripture? Well, we see how to do that in verse 7. Look down to verse 7. It says there, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion and the day of trial in the wilderness. So, the way that we take heed of the warning of God is by not hardening our hearts, but rather we must remain tender. We must remain tender to the things of God. Now, the question is, how do we do that, though? How do we remain tender? How do we not become hardened? Well, there's a hint in this passage because what we, whatever we need to do, it's the opposite of what the wilderness generation did. In other words, this is one of those sermons where the Bible itself says, Don't be like those people. Sometimes people ridicule sermons like that. Don't be like that. Well, this is what the Bible is doing. You see that? Don't be like those people. Well, what did those people do? Well, the passage tells us, if you look at verse 9, it tells us, it says, Where your fathers tested me and tried me. They saw my works forty years, therefore I was angry with that generation, and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways, so I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So what did they do? They tried and tested the Lord. Now what does it mean to try and test the Lord? Well, some of you may or may not be from the South, but there's an expression in the South where people say, especially old ladies, sometimes men, but mostly old ladies, tell their grandchildren, you're trying my patience. Anybody heard that expression? You're trying my patience. What do they mean by that? They mean, you are irritating me. You're frustrating me. You're about to get some discipline, some instruction. Well, that's what's going on here, is that these people are trying the Lord. They are testing him. They're becoming an irritation that they are about to be lashed out against with anger, justice, and punishment. Kind of a crazy thought, but that's exactly what the text says, that they are, in anthropomorphic language, trying the Lord's patience, and His anger is about to break out against them. Now, why? Why did they try the Lord's patience. Well, it says in verse 9b, it says they saw my works 40 years. And then verse 10, it says they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. So putting this all together, they saw the works of the Lord. And yet despite all, all of this, despite seeing the works of the Lord, their hearts continue to go astray. They knew about the Lord. They knew about his works, but their heart wasn't in it. They didn't know the Lord. Now, recently, I have sold a house and I purchased a house, and I had to learn some skills. I had to learn how to paint. I had to learn how to cut wood, hammer. Not very good at that, but hammer, wood, at least attempt to do all these things. And the way that I did it was the way most people of my generation do things. They go on this wonderful website called YouTube, and they type in, how do you paint? How do you cut A board and not your finger. Those kind of things. And what I did was I watched all these videos, finding out this is how you're supposed to paint. Dip it in and all that, right? But until I actually did it, I didn't know it. I just had some familiarity with the concept because I saw it but I didn't do it. And that's what's going on here in this passage, that these people saw the Lord's ways. They were with him in the wilderness. They heard about his law. They saw Moses and Joshua and Caleb following the instructions of the Lord, but they did not know the Lord. They did not know by experience. There's one thing to say, yeah, I kind of know how to paint. Painting is a good example. Painting is easy. It at least appears to be easy. Just dip it in and then splash it around. and It should be okay, right? It's really easy. But if you do that, you'll find that you get more paint on your body than you do on the wall and there'll be paint everywhere. There's some things that you have to learn by experience and simply just seeing someone do it isn't the same thing. And so the question is, is that your religious life? Is your religious life simply, you know what it looks like, you know what godly people, you hear about them, you see them, you might even be related to them, you might even be married to one of these people, but you yourself do not know the way of the Lord. That is the kind of person that this passage is talking about, somebody who sees, but not someone who lives it, not someone who experiences these things. And God, far from being pleased with this kind of behavior, finds it to be putrid in his mouth. He is not happy with simply people knowing visually, conceptually, but not actually experiencing and walking in the ways of the Lord. So we need to be careful. We need to take these warnings. We need to ask ourselves, is that us? Do we simply know about the way of the Lord? Are we walking in his ways? Are we experiencing what it looks like to be a Christian man or woman? Are we growing in godliness, or are we refusing to obey, stiffening our neck, and our heart is becoming harder? Our passage warns against simply going through the motions or simply stiffening ourselves and refusing to be softened by the Son of God. We see that in verse 12. Look at verse 12. It says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily, as it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The first thing we see there is, notice the warning, beware. It's a big warning sign. Beware. Beware of this. Beware lest we have an evil heart of unbelief. It's so interesting that our society says that unbelief and doubt and reconstruction, that's all being open-minded. That's a virtue. But the Bible says that's a vice. It says a doubting man should not expect anything from the Lord. It says beware here. If you see in yourself that doubt is creeping in, if you see in yourself unbelief is rushing through, you need to see this as an enemy and not as a friend. If something is causing you, to have doubt creeping in, if you're going to a class, college students, or if you're reading a book and all of these things, or if you're watching a TV show or listening to a podcast and you notice that this thing is producing doubt, look back to this passage and remember this sermon, beware, lest there be an evil heart of unbelief causing you to depart from the living God. You see the connection? That unbelief separates you from God and causes you to depart from him. Don't do it. Don't see that as something positive. If something hurts your faith, run away and go to God. You should be like the man in Mark says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Doubt is not your friend. Doubt is your enemy, and doubt here is the cause of departing from the Lord. But instead of doubting, look at verse 13. But exhort one another daily. It's not just don't doubt, but rather encourage rather exhort, rather come alongside those who doubt, those who struggle, those who are going through the trial. We're all, in some ways, going through the trial. And you're supposed to do this while it is called today. Well, every day is called today. So instead of doubting, instead of being someone who's about to fall off the ledge, instead you should be an exhorter. Instead you should be somebody who's saying, God, you have gifted me with spiritual gifts. And I want to find somebody out there that I can exhort and encourage, and build up in the things of God. Let me ask you a question. Is this describing you? Where are you in this passage? Are you a doubter? Are you someone on the edge? Or rather, are you an exhorter, helping people come off the edge? You see? We're not called to just be on the sideline. There's no sideline here. There's no, just sit around and do nothing. It's either you're doubting, or you're exhorting. Notice also how sin is described. We're described as becoming hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is very deceitful. It tricks you. It's malicious. It's just like the serpent that sneaks in. You think you can handle that serpent, but that serpent will have you hung up and cast out. Do not play with sin. I'm going to wrap this sermon up. I want to tell you a story. I remember, I'm going to tell you two stories. I remember the first time that I went on a public bus. I'm not really a city guy. I was living in the suburbs, and I decided to go on a public bus, and I got on a public bus, and this older gentleman took a liking to me. I don't know why, but he took a liking to me, and he was older, probably 25, 26. I was maybe 15 at the time, and he gave me some interesting street advice. Street advice is interesting. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. This one was pretty bad. He told me, Oxycontin is amazing. Maybe you know what Oxycontin is. Maybe you don't. It's an opioid, prescription drug. He told me it was amazing. He also gave me some interesting advice. He said, never take a dose more than two days in a row, otherwise you'll be like me. That was terrible advice. That's not good advice. Just do this very addictive drug, but just don't do it two days in a row. Terrible street advice. It obviously did not work for him, and anyone trying that advice, it wouldn't work for you. Sin is deceitful. You can't handle that drug. That drug will tear you up and destroy you. Let me tell you another story. When I was in the Army, there was this guy, I shouldn't say his name, there was this guy, we'll call him Bob. And Bob was a young guy, and he was on top of the world, and he thought he knew everything. And in the military, you're not allowed to do drugs. You get drug tested. and If you find out you do drugs, you'll be kicked out. And he would tell me that he would do all these drugs, not just small drugs, It it was tough drugs, big drugs. And I, was, I said to him, like cocaine, for example, I said to him, aren't you afraid that you'll be addicted? He said, addiction's for wimps. It's for weaklings. I can handle this. Six months later, he was being chaptered out of the army because he couldn't handle his drug problem. He couldn't stay off of it and be thrown out. Here's the moral of those stories. When it comes to drugs, hopefully you all can see that you can't mess with these things. You can't handle them. You can't just dabble in a little bit. The people who do, we call them drug addicts. You don't want to try to outsmart drugs. Drugs will outsmart you. Well, how many of you are trying to outsmart sin? How many of you think I can just dabble in a little bit? It's not that deceitful. I can handle it. Well, look to this passage. Beware, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is very deceitful. Stay away. Don't just try to dabble in like that drug addict. Just don't do it two days in a row. Or that drugs are simply for weaklings, but I can handle it. You can't run to Christ, run to his mercy, run to his salvation, run to him. He'll save you and don't dabble with sin. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that we are so often people who do in fact dabble with sin that you constantly pull us back. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to not view unbelief and things that would cause us to doubt as some kind of virtue, as some kind of intellectual achievement that we can expose ourselves to filth and think that this is somehow pleasing in your sight. Help us not to do this, but rather see doubt as a great enemy and cling with all of our might, saying, who do we have but you, that we would run to you. Lord, help us not to play with sin. Help us rather be people who see sin as a great filth, a great enemy, a great addiction, and try to stay free of it and help us to not just sit on the sideline, but exhort one another, as it is called today, seeing that we are in a cosmic battle for the souls of men and that we will be part of your army, encouraging one another to continue to fight the good fight until the very end. We praise these things in Jesus' name. Amen.